0: This is the On The Touchline podcast. I'm your host, Jason Broadwater. Welcome to the show. When I started this podcast in December of 2018, the one thing that I wanted to convey to you, the listener, is the amount of passion and love that people have for the game of football or game of soccer. I think we've been able to do that in 50-plus episodes of this show. And there's so many branches of this tree. One can go down in the layers from the youth game to the collegiate game to professional. Um, It's pretty astounding, actually. I don't quite remember how I came upon this person in episode 23 of season two, but Sarah Dwyer Schick is a pretty phenomenal and and pretty amazing person. And somehow it came up in my Twitter timeline uh, a while back. And I immediately thought this is someone that I would love to have on the podcast. Sarah is a football uh, slash soccer coach here in the States, but she's also the founder of something that is probably uh, a little bit under the radar in terms of uh, an organization that's trying to become a nonprofit. So she founded the Sports Bra Project. So I won't go into details about how the project works or some of the work that they're doing. Sarah talks about that in this episode. But if you want to connect with them, and whether you coach boys, men, girls or women, um, you can support the work that they're doing by going to project.org and you can learn more about that. So a little bit about Sarah before we get into this episode. She was a three-sport athlete in college and earned her bachelor's degree from Smith College and a master's degree in sports management from the University of Denver. She coached in the NCAA uh, for 15 years and then decided uh, along the way to shift her focus to youth development. She's the owner of SJI Training and has worked with numerous youth clubs as a coach and consultant. She also served for five years as the director of coaching for New York's Girls North Olympic Development Program and coached for eight years with the New York Rush slash Patriots Club, he's currently the technical director at Downtown United Soccer Club in Manhattan, and the assistant men's coach at Duchess Community College, um, just outside or just north of uh, of Manhattan. I hope you enjoy this conversation and this really feel good story in season two, episode twenty three, with Sarah Dwyer Schick. <laughs> So I always start our podcast, Sarah, by asking folks uh, about their origin story. And knowing that, you know, you've coached the game of soccer for a little while now, but um, you know, where did you grow up? How did it start? And uh, kind of how did you get to where you are currently uh, as a coach?
1: Yeah, I'm a title nine baby, so I grew up with some opportunities, but also not the same that are available now. Um, played three sports through high school. Uh, went on knew I wanted to play in college. Soccer was always sort of the sport I loved the most. Um, so played at Smith for my first two years, spent a year, at my junior year abroad at uh, the University of Denver, which was not exactly abroad, but wanted to experience something a little bit different, maybe a more traditional school and soccer at a different level, um, which is a really yeah, unique experience going from Smith to Denver. They're two very different different schools in many, many ways. Um, both very good, uh, but certainly a yeah, unique experience. And I went back and I finished up my senior year of college at Smith and ended up coaching with a local high school. And I think from there, it just kind of solidified that I wanted to stay in sports. Um, I knew I wasn't going to be, there was no professional league at the time. I knew I wasn't you know going to continue in that kind of capacity, but coaching was an outlet. Coaching was an opportunity to stay in the game, um, not grow up a little bit and still wear sweats to work, I guess would be the way I'd look at it. Um,
0: <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> <laughs>
1: so, yeah. So I, um, the first job I had out of college was as, as an assistant at University of Northern Colorado, which is a, you know, the other UNC. People would ask, "Oh, you're at UNC?" I'm like, "Yeah, but this is the one out in Greeley. This is not the same one." Um, and did that for a few years. Had an amazing time. It was sort of a uh, Their program had been started before, but it was sort of just now getting into a full schedule where you were eligible for postseason play, which was kind of a whole other animal where it hadn't been funded enough, and um, you're asked to roster manage up to 30-plus players just so you can balance out football. But we did very well at it. Um, After a couple of years, I uh, decided to go back to grad school and maybe kind of see what else was out there, and I think about a month or two, and I called a friend who was running a local club, and I was like, I need to coach also, because I'm not a business person. I love this stuff. It's important, but I wanted to wanted to still coach, so I kind of balanced that with uh, youth club stuff through grad school, and then um, got back into it, had the opportunity to start um, as an assistant with uh, South Dakota State the first year of the program, which was kind of an incredible experience. South Dakota was uh, definitely culture shock coming from the east and west coasts so and not living in uh, the square flat states in the middle too much, except for Denver. Uh, South Dakota was a little bit of a step back in time, I guess I would say. There were 23 sports and there were two female assistant coaches on staff, uh, which was a little bit of a wake-up call coming from Smith or coming from the east coast where you're used to you know, not being the only one in the room, um, as it were. And, uh, but it was a really incredible experience. Amazing women uh, to start a program. It wasn't a sanctioned high school sport. So we're dealing with lots of different factors there, um, but it was really uh, probably one of the most rewarding couple of years, knowing that we took it from nothing to really, you know, the beginning of what's now a, real, a solid program. Uh, it certainly looked a lot, looks a lot different now than it did uh, in, in 2000 when it started. Um, ended up on the East Coast for a job and stayed in coaching college stuff for a while, thinking that was where I wanted to be. And then uh, I think I realized, you know, the shiny wore off a little bit and I really liked the youth game, so probably the last – seven, eight years. That's pretty much what I've been doing exclusively. Um, right now I'm working with a, um, as a technical director with a club in Manhattan with downtown United with their goalkeepers and uh, doing stuff with their uh, girls program, but I've also stayed a little bit in it as a assistant with a junior college men's program that's in my area and uh, which has been a lot of fun and a completely different experience. Uh,
0: so. I'm always curious when I have guests on about um, what their youth soccer experience was like. And um you know for I've told this story before, but you know the the coaches I had as a, as a youth player, we did uh, a whole lot of fitness work um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't do much with a ball. Um, I was actually uh, talking with someone recently, an athletic director at a local high school, and um <clears throat> we were just talking philosophies on sport, and I told him that um you know if if someone were to watch a training session that I would run, virtually everything we do has a ball involved with it in a player, you know, with a ball of some sort. So I'm curious for you, um, you know, where home was, uh, because you'd mentioned the West Coast and East Coast, but what that youth uh, soccer experience was like, um, you know, for you growing up.
1: Um, definitely had the same coaches. I think they went to the same school as a goalkeeper. Uh, they decided to be really kind to us. So when we did those laps, mandatory laps to start practice, uh, I got to carry the ball at times, which I'm like, really, this seems like not the best idea. But uh, you know, before the pass back rule. So originally from Philadelphia, um, I played just sort of elementary school stuff. My parents weren't super into sports uh, so that we weren't really connected to necessarily what was going on at the time. So played with school opportunities that I had. Ended up um, in high school out in Seattle where my mom was and played through high school there. So the youth experience was limited on the club side, a little bit outside at different times. Some summer teams, they kind of sort of stumbled into a little bit. Um, I was going back and forth between the East Coast or between Philadelphia and Seattle for a while, so teams that played in the summer I might be able to pick up on for one summer and then kind of leave them as I went back to the other coast. Um, So it was definitely limited, um, both from what was available, but also from just logistically what was available to me at the time,
0: too. I know, um, you know, at different times there've been, so I, I I have probably learned more from the bad coaches that I had (laughs) as a, as a youth player and and much like you, um, you know, played a number of sports and, uh, besides soccer, played basketball, played baseball, uh, dabbled in hockey and American football a little bit. Um, but also realized that, uh, you know, had a number of very shouty and very, um, I guess authoritarian coaches, yeah. and uh, you know, I think that's it's really helped form me as a coach in terms of what I don't want to be, um, and kind of my identity as a coach because I'm probably 180 degrees, you know, opposite of that, um, but yet yeah, you know, can still command a team and command a room if I need right. to. Um, you know, I, I'm curious those influences in terms of coaching and sort of that moment where you know you maybe realize that. Um, hey, this is something that I could see myself doing, you know, mm-hmm. is a career or profession or, you know, kind of something is that next step. Um, were there people along the way or is it more sort of that internal motivation, um, you know, for you?
1: I think I'd say a little bit of both. Like you, I had some interesting coaches who definitely subscribed to the uh, old school American football coaching model of yelling, running and fitness um but then I did have some coaches along the way who really did have an impact and were a huge impact on my life with moving as much as I did that was kind of a bit of stability and sort of my outlet um and what got me through school to be honest without sports I certainly would not have gotten through school I just didn't have the attention for it or the focus but I knew I had to so I could play in the afternoon um had an amazing high school coach um who just Amazing person, I think is the best way to put it. He certainly wasn't necessarily cutting edge of coaching, but his personality and his sort of patience and sort of teaching model really resonated. Um, Another coach who really stood out was actually in cross-country skiing, and I'd stumbled into that as a a way to stay fit in the winter since there wasn't year-round soccer. I wasn't connected to that community of year-round soccer, and uh, he was great, you know, being able to be out there for a couple hours, whether it was on a long, you know, training (laughs) uh, bit or um, just in the long travel in the vans and stuff, uh, I think it really kind of connected on the personal side um, and then on the motivational side of just wanting to be your best. Um,
0: mm-hmm. uh, so in your mind, what, what makes a good coach?
1: Yeah, I mean, outside of the knowledge of the game, which is obviously a huge piece of it, I think it's that understanding that it's really a teaching approach, at least how I approach it. You want to hold the standards high, you have expectations, um, but at the same time, people are individuals and there's a team and they need to develop individually and as a team and some of that, learning how to navigate um, on the field and in life in general, they kind of go hand in hands. So you can't really separate them. You might be able to separate them for a particular practice, but they really do sort of constantly go hand in hand. So you, yeah. I saw it.
0: We talk a lot on this podcast about, um, you know, culture and sort of shaping culture as a coach. And sometimes it can be, I think in my experience, it can be easy to do that depending on the group that you have and, you know, how quickly they sort of buy into maybe the idea, uh, that you're trying to, you know, present to them. Um, there've been groups that it's been far more challenging and, uh, you feel like you spend a whole season or a whole year, uh, trying to get to that moment. And sometimes you get there and sometimes you don't. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm curious for you what culture means in your coaching experience. And, you know, what do you do or how have you been a part of a group that is sort of shaped culture when trying to build a team or work with a group of players?
1: Yeah, culture is such a big, it's a big topic. It's a big buzzword right now. And I think we don't always mean the same thing by it. Um, I think it's outside culture looks like, you know, just team expectations, what they do, things like that, Um, what the outside world sees as the culture of the team. But the inside world is really more the relationships with the athletes and the relationships with the coach. And then within that, being able to strive to whatever it is their goal is, wherever that level is that they're working towards Um, and whatever, whether that's an individual small goal at the moment or whether it's a larger goal to go on to play in high school, to play in college, to play beyond that. Um, And the culture really kind of that supports that. I think to me that's, yeah, it's not just one piece of it. I think culture is made up of um it might be grounded in team expectations, not rules, but guidelines. And then outside of that is really how it's fostered by the coach um, and encouraged by the coaches and then ultimately by the players who kind of take ownership of that. I'm a really big proponent of. You know, you may give them guidelines and parameters, but within that, um, there should be a lot of ownership of the players and how you get to that. So long as we follow within these broad strokes, this is going to develop in a way that resonates with them. And ultimately, they're more committed to that uh, if they buy into it and if they have a part in sort of shaping it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think that varies depending on level a little bit, too. Um, I worked there's a time when I was working with um, running the girls ODP North program for Eastern New York at the same time I was coordinating and staffing an AYSO program. Both of them were amazing programs, but the players in AYSO, the culture of that would not have fit in the culture within the ODP players, and they would have been miserable and vice versa. Um, but knowing that those opportunities for both of those groups were really were equally important. And that Saturday, one day a week that the AYSO players played, they looked forward to just as much as the ODP players did, But then they went off and did something else afterwards, or it was more because of their teammates, whereas the players who are striving to attain that higher level were really looking at sort of a culture that would foster that and encourage that challenge. And the AYSO players were looking more for, we want to be part of a team, I want to hang out with my friends, and I want to be active. And I think both cultures are valid. Um, They don't necessarily go together, but sort of finding that fit that the team kind of resonates with and what kind of, let them leading it a little bit once the parameters are set, what kind of guidelines and what kind of level are we looking at?
0: yeah i I love that in terms of the uh the ownership of the players um it actually reminds me of a conversation that i had with my son uh, a day or two ago and that um you know as, as his dad my job is to to give him knowledge to put him in a good situation but ultimately you know he's the one making the decisions and he's the one it's his life and um you know, I was telling him that, um, for my wife and I to educate him as best we can, but you know, there's going to be times where he has success in making those uh, decisions. There's going to be times where he fails, but in the, on the back end of the conversation, he has two people that support him unconditionally and, um, You know, I, I equate that to coaching because I think if, you know, I I always view myself as sort of a champion for my players Mm -hmm. that not that, um, you know, they're, um, they're perfect and that they don't make mistakes and they don't, um, do things that I disagree with. Uh, however, that they know that, you know, uh, and some people, sometimes they sort of roll their eyes when I say to them that they literally have their unconditional support of me, Mm -hmm. um, you know, because I want their best and I want to do whatever I can. Um, And I think, you know, it it sort of goes back to the beginning of our conversation of, um, you know, those coaches that um, had a negative influence on me, and that, you know, my own self-awareness of coming to a place of realizing, you know, yes, there were a handful of good coaches, but I want to be that person where a player looks back and goes, wow, you know, Coach Jason was that guy in my life that, like he never gave up on me. He never wrote me off. He never said like, you know, so-and-so you're, you're not good enough for this. Or, um, you know, you're, you know, we get into sort of the, the metrics of soccer sometimes in terms of speed and size and strength and all these things that, you know, for me, aren't necessarily as important as maybe other sports. And, um, you know, people are very quick to make a snap judgment about a player just because they see them uh, or their size or, you know, something like that. So I'm on my soapbox here. So you can
1: (laughs) join you on that soapbox. I absolutely backing the players. As you said, they don't always do the things you would do or make the same choices, but knowing that they have someone who, you know, backs them and is willing to support them as they explore whatever it is they're exploring, whether that's interests or social life or just sort of, who they are, how important soccer is to them, or how important it isn't, or other things coming in. Um, and knowing that you know, if they're there, they're committed 100%, but knowing that there's other pieces to them too, I think is, is essential. And respecting those other pieces. We might not get to talk about it, but they need to know that you're, you're kind of there, and you know, if they want to, we can. Um, mm-hmm. we, we may not have time today, but if you want to reach out, we can kind of just yeah. being there as that outlet. Um,
0: well, I I think it it really speaks to us as individuals that we are not just you know I'm not just a soccer coach you're not just a soccer coach that is a a sliver of the pie um you know so, some days it feels like the whole pie but uh, uh, that is um, a component of who we are among other things and you know for for a young person I think it's really important for them to understand that. Uh, when they are training or when they're a part of a a soccer team that, yes, that is part of their identity, but they might play a musical instrument. They might be, um, you know, into theater or, um, you know, something like that, or they might like to, they might be really good at math or science or, uh, you know, uh, engineering things or or whatever. Um, You know, we're, I I guess what I'm trying to say is that we're not one trick ponies and uh, you know, to, I think even, some of the players that I've coached um, sometimes seem surprised when I'm interested in like how they're doing in school because, you know, like I've asked them at times um, and they sort of look at me kind of like, you know, (laughs) that sort of dog giving you that like side head look. And like, you're actually interested in like how school went today. Yes. I, I want to know because, you know, I see you for so little each week that, you know uh, i want to know those sort of other areas of your life right. that uh, that i may or may not be aware of so yeah.
1: i think that little piece is sometimes you know for me growing up it was important that you know coaches understood that or you're kind of thrilled when somebody asked that question and you might not give a long answer and it might not be a long conversation but just knowing that there's that interest as you said is really important and it's funny i the there's a group of you 15 boys who I work with and people are like, Oh yeah, they don't, you know, they just want to play. They just want to whatever. But when you take that time a little bit before a session to just say, you know, how's your, how's your day? Or ask about something that they mentioned or, you know, just notice something different. They got new shoes, they got a new haircut, whatever it is. And you can just see them kind of like, Oh, you noticed. And I'm like, yeah, we can have a casual two second, you know, maybe it's just a couple a minute conversation and that's okay, but that's enough for them to kind of have that little bit of a connection and, I think we get stuck in. Yeah, you know, the more serious players may not. There's a time and a place for it, and people think that they might not need it, but they need it just as much as you know the recreational players too. Um, and it, you know, it may manifest differently or may not be as long, but it's it's still just as valid.
0: I often tell uh, coaching friends and, and have friends that coach in other sports uh, besides soccer, and that, you know, I, I genuinely believe that our role as a coach is to be like chief observationist, where mm-hmm. we're literally paying attention to everything because we do so much of it during a match or during a training session that I think it's exactly what you said, Sarah, that players seem surprised when we notice something about them. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm, uh, I happen, I, I love shoes and I love soccer boots. So I, I'm very quick to notice when a player shows up at training, you know, in, in a pair of new boots or something. And, um, you know, they're like, what do you, what you, you saw that. I'm like, yes, I, because you know, it, it's part of the, I, I mean, it just builds that connection. Um, and, you know, uh, I just finished, uh, my, my D license and there was such a, a big emphasis on leading the player, but also leading the team. And mm-hmm. it's that rapport. I mean, you can't, I mean, in some cases, I don't think you can put a value, uh, you know, on what that means to the environment. Um, that you're trying to create as a coach, so, um, so you and I have something similar uh, among other things besides being soccer coaches and you know crazy about the best game in the world, but um, you were a goalkeeper, and uh, <laughs> I, I so I you've been I'm trying to think what I, you've been a, a one of a handful of goalkeepers we've had on the show and. Uh, one, I love that because I was a goalkeeper, not, not a not very good one. Um, I tend to let in more goals than I probably <laughs> stopped. But what were you like as a player? I always like to ask that question of guests. Oh, that's
1: funny. It's funny, like I've been coached for So along with different age groups, you see a player and you're like, oh, my gosh, that was me. And you look at it, you're like, oh, wow, (laughs) now I get it. Or now I get what frustrated my coach or now I get what my coach liked. Um, I was probably a lot more heart than talent, (laughs) I would say, um, definitely in that department. Um, While I had some amazing coaches, I wouldn't necessarily, they all say they all knew the direction to necessarily give on the soccer side. um, just Time level where I was. Um, Yeah, I think I was that slightly reckless, I would say on the field. Absolutely. Off the field was a little more reserved and, you know, play by the rules to some extent, but on the field, it was, you know, anything kind of went. And I I love that sort of that physical piece of the game and that intensity and that little bit of craziness of the goalkeeper's reputation. I think I'd own that somewhat. I have to own that a little bit. Um, But then also being the one who, you know, really thinking of it as a sort of thinking your way through the game, especially as I've gotten older with it is, that importance and with those, you know, we're similar in ages and we both came through with that rule change for the pass pack rule that I think we're now just getting to sort of worldwide, not use as a liability, but, and then not use as, I'd say the first couple of years after that rule, it was a lot of, um, you know, the goalkeepers a liability, they can't use their feet. Then it became, okay, well now we can use their feet. That's enough. But now it's the, can they impact the game? And to me, that thinking piece of it, I probably didn't have as much as a player, but it's something now that I try to bring to training, um, especially for the players who are maybe more academically inclined, if they can think their way through something a little bit, it helps them. Um, whereas I was the player who probably just wanted to run through the brick wall, and because that was kind of fun. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, so I think that's yeah, that's probably how I w- would approach that as a player yeah. and see it a little differently as a coach, and try to take that player now who might have been like me as a when I was younger, and can we add that other piece to the game? Can we broaden their view of it sooner than I did? Um, Can they now add to that great sort of that innate craziness that makes a good goalkeeper, but also add that sort of calculated understanding and put them together in a way that now you've got the best of both Uh without Mm -hmm. quoting Hannah Montana on that one.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, well played there. Well played there. (laughs) Um, Do you think that uh, being a goalkeeper has helped you become a better coach?
1: In some ways, yes. And it's funny because you, know, you talked about having a few goalkeepers on the podcast. And when I talk to coaching friends, the number of us who've come through and have stayed in coaching longer, the percentage is I don't know, but it's got to be high. The number of goalkeepers who stay and translate into coaching has to be at a much higher rate than field players. And I'm not sure quite where that comes from. I don't know if you have thoughts on that one. Um, but, yeah, I definitely think it gives you a different perspective on the game.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I think there's something to organizing and um you know, really understanding each player's role. And you have sort of this panoramic viewpoint, um, you know, when you're standing in the the six or the 18-yard box and, you know, you're kind of watching where players are and positioning. And I think for me, it's helped give, you know, so when you're standing on the touchline, you know, you see a certain perspective of the game, but when you're standing from behind, it gives you even a a deeper perspective and a different viewpoint. And I think for me, it's really helped me, you know, uh, ta- I would say more tactically, yeah. um, you know, than anything. And uh, uh, some folks that were, um, so we finished up our, our D license over the weekend in uh, near Cleveland. And one of the sort of final requirements, so we were short on youth players, um, because it was Father's Day and kids mm-hmm. were tied up or whatever. And uh, so they asked us coaches to play. And so, you know, of course I'm like, I'll play goalkeeper. Yeah, sure. Sounds great. Then end up playing a little center back. Um, and then, you know, guys are, guys and gals are starting to wear down a little bit and they're like, um, will you bump up and play in the midfield? And I, I mean, Sarah, I literally was like a fish out of water. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, i probably look, I would lo- I wish we had recorded that because I probably look like a, um, just a clumsy bumbling mess uh you know when I had the ball at my feet or whatever and and I'm not sure why because um it goes back to what you said that uh you know a a keeper today a modern day keeper sort of has to be very comfortable with the ball at their feet it has to be as technically skilled as uh as some of the other players on the pitch so um you know why I felt sort of out of place I'm not quite sure but um yeah it's uh I, I think it's definitely added perspective and um you know, just a, a better understanding and appreciation for the game. And also, I think an appreciation for when I'm coaching goalkeepers because, uh, you know, as a, as one, a former guest, um, you know, had mentioned that, uh, you know, yes, a goalkeeper knows when when he or she lets a goal in. Like, the parents don't need to remind him <laughs> or her, you know, of that. And um, I don't know. I mean, I think you have to be mentally it, – yes, it's a, it's a physical job for sure, uh, but you have to be as mentally strong as physically strong, I think, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, to be uh, effective in that position. so
1: Uh, That's a different kind of focus. You're focused for the entire game, but you may not be as physically active for the whole game, but being able to maintain that mental edge while you may just be kind of moving with the play, but not necessarily having to sprint or be called upon, except for in that little bit when it's in that, you know, in your area to to be as intense as the teammates physically, but you're mentally you have to be focused the whole time and understand, um, you know. Yeah, it's funny what you said about the midfield. I think as I would probably where I would go on the field, be most comfortable in the back or up top and as a striker, and I think that that's because you know you see the backs, you know how they play, you know what you want, but then you also see what you don't want the stri- or you want the strikers to do or you don't want them to do. So mm-hmm. then you know I think every goalkeeper at some level is a secret striker, maybe not the best, but in their mind they are. <laughs> um, and the midfields, just as you said, fish out of water. You are kind of seeing 360. It's all around you. It's not in front of you. It's 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 in front of you. It's behind you. It's it's a very different vision of the game, um, which I think is an incredible skill for midfielders who have that. But it may not necessarily necessarily be the skill set that's you know first to mind for the goalkeeper mm-hmm. is that 360. Um, I still watch games from behind if I have a choice. I'd love to watch them from up behind the goal um, or recruit from behind there. That was always, you know, people are like, why are you sitting there? I'm like, because I can see the game develop and I'm looking at the keeper and now I know where they're positioned it's not from the side you're seeing sort of the nuances of the movement and how they're how they're connected to the game when it's on the other side of the field
0: yeah uh it also didn't help that i was playing against uh some guys and gals that were probably a good 10 or 15 <laughs> years younger than me <laughs> yeah and, makes uh, a difference <laughs> <laughs> i was uh, i was definitely gassed uh, <laughs> by the end of things and uh, tried to take reasonably good care of myself but uh yeah, I'm definitely not uh you know, I probably couldn't go the full 90, I guess is what I'm trying to say. So Yeah, I'd be on the same page with you on that one. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Don't tell the players that though. Yeah, um, that's
0: right. That's right. Do, do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> um, so it at some point along uh in your coaching and sort of uh, professional journey that this uh idea of starting the sports bra uh project uh came into existence for you. And um I'll be sure to link uh to the website and make sure that folks are able to connect and uh if they want to support you know the work that you and others are doing but I I'm very interested in the the origin of that and sort of where that came from and um you know kind of you know how that all started for you
1: um it kind of started a little by accident um and has evolved into something that's been probably one of the most rewarding and amazing connection wise things that I've done uh, I think with soccer, a lot of us get to travel, uh, which I love if I could travel professionally, I would do that, um, both in the u s and living in different places and abroad. And um, you see different barriers uh, to participation. some places in the u s, you know it's very accessible and we take for granted that every girl can play and has the opportunity to play maybe she's playing at a lower level or higher level, but she has an opportunity to play, and no one thinks bats an eye when they see that. Um, in other countries, that's not always the case, and there are pockets in the u s where that's not the case as well so i think with traveling um you kind of see that and see that some of the barriers are cultural whether it's um, having to take care of siblings whether it's girls just don't play or whether priority goes to your brother and other places it's financial we don't have the in the u.s the pay-for-play model i don't have the money to pay and in other countries financial resources are even more limited um and I, I guess the beginning of the project really was um, on a trip to Brazil. I'd had the opportunity to work. Um, I worked at the old Vogelsinger camps for probably five or six years, and most of their staff was international. And a couple of us had got to become really good friends. So when one of my friends who's brazilian decided to do a soccer school in his town it's about it's a little town called Itapeva it's about 4 hours south of sao paulo so not a tourist destination um he's like you know what we want to do a couple of weeks of camps um so would you and a couple of our friends want to come and just kind of you know we'll do a couple of weeks of sort of nominal fee camps but we're also going to let pretty much anybody in and then we'll go into some other areas as best as we can to kind of bring soccer there and i was like absolutely so um we brought gear over and we're doing the clinics, and it was mainly boys, which was fine. I, they were actually enjoyable to work with, and a couple girls here and there. Um, and then one day he asked me, he's like, "Well, tomorrow night, would you like to? Would you be able, want to do a training session for the feminine team in the neighboring town?" I was like, "Absolutely! You know, sure, I'd love to do that. You know, we're in an environment mainly boys, couple girls, but can we, you know, get a group of them together? Yeah." Um, so I was really excited about it. And the next day we went over and it was, you know, it was raining, but it's Brazil in November. So it was like 70 and raining, a nice little mist. I'm like, this is awesome. This is like perfect weather. Um, and we get there and the fields look immaculate. And they told us we can't go in the fields because it's raining. It's like, okay. So they directed us to this little pavilion that's um, kind of sat above a little field complex open on the sides, you know, a nice little stone pavilion where we could talk. Um, so the girls came in and we st- talked with my friend translating, I don't speak Portuguese, so he had to go back and forth with all of it. And while we're talking, we're watching the boys play on the fields. And I was kind of like, okay. <laughs> um, you know. And I didn't say anything, Fabio, I knew my look, he knew, has known me long enough to know that I'm kind of like, yeah, so I didn't think we were allowed on the fields. Um, and you could tell the girls were looking too, but that they weren't really surprised by it. Um, And I think the amazing thing about that group was it was a range of ages, and I couldn't really tell. I was like, you know, I'm not great with ages, so I figured I'd ask. And I'd seen some of the the women play um, and knew a couple of them were solid players and certainly could have played at a a choice of some colleges in the U.S. if they'd wanted to or been able to. And the age range was 13 to 31. (laughs) And I was kind of... I'm like, okay. And the 31-year-old, I actually thought she was much younger than that. I would seen her play, and she was good. She was a very good player who, you know... had clearly some amazing innate talent, but had some coaching and had, you know, tactical awareness. And I asked her, how do you, I mean, why do you play with, you know, these 13 year olds? And her answer was, well, if I didn't do this, they wouldn't be able to play. (laughs) And I was kind kind of like, okay, so this is a different place. Um, and they talked about a lot of the other barriers that they had, you know, whether they to, say, take care of family, some of the cultural expectations and the financial things. Um, in Brazil, uh, labor is really, really cheap, but manufactured goods like T-shirts are expensive. Um, and so are sports bras. So I kind of, you know, I tucked that in the back of my mind and looked at, you know, we have a lot of different barriers there. You know, and one of them is the equipment and the sports bras, the piece of equipment that a lot of them were lacking or had a harder time accessing. Um, So I came back from that trip with just a slightly different perspective on it um, and a little annoyance that we couldn't be on the field still. Um, (laughs) But uh, a couple of years after that, I had the opportunity to go with a group from um, where I live in the Hudson Valley in New York to Namibia. And we'd sent over a shipping container ahead of us with soccer equipment and school books, and they were going to be sort of given out to different groups that we'd been put in contact with. Um, and I knew that one of the days we were there, we were going to be working with um, the Namibian Football Association, runs a program called Gals for Goals. And it sort of reaches into a lot of the more rural communities. Um, and rural, when I say rural, it's, it's more than you'd even consider in the Midwest here. It's remote, <laughs> um, very, very remote. Um, and I was like, all right, you know, let me just bring a couple bras. So I'm um, so I went to Marshalls. I think I bought out like 25 of their clearance bras, and you know, let's see what happens. Um, and I offered them um, the day we were there. I offered them to this woman, Jackie, who sort of spearheaded getting a lot of their programs going. Um, and she asked me if she could give them to her national team. And I kind of went, "Here we are in the capital city, and you're in the, with the, working with the federation." And Of all the places in the country, this is where the women should have sports bras available to them, and they don't. So if there's a need here for that, the rural need is even more so, um, and in more of these areas. And she really opened my eyes to something that I hadn't even considered. Um, You know, I think of sports bras as just a piece of equipment. It's comfort. You know, I'm not Dolly Parton, but I still wouldn't play without a bra. Um, And she said but she brought up something. She's like, well, you know, it's, um, it's shameful and i'm like what she's like well if you're seen bouncing around it's kind of seen as being promiscuous or not appropriate and that's shameful to you and your family and i think my mind was completely blown on that it wasn't something that i even thought about um so uh, the pieces like with the sports bra project really that come into play are some of the barriers to participation we can't address all of the cultural or the financial ones but can we address this need this piece of equipment and make it a little easier to access sports Um, We know it's still going to be a struggle, um, and but we also know that you know for us it may be a comfort need, but for in other cultures it's a comfort as well as a modesty consideration, and that's just as important. Both of them are just as valid, and you know I think we take for granted a lot in the U.S. You can just run to Target and pick up a bra if you need it, Um, and in other places even if you have even if they're available, you may not have the financial resources. And in some places, you know, I think I went into the sporting goods store in the capital city, which is Windhoek, and I just was curious, what do they have here? And I don't think I saw a bra. (laughs) And I'm like, here's our one sporting goods store, and there's not a sports bra here. Um, So it really is one of those barriers uh, to participation that we don't really talk about a lot. Um, And... That's sort of the beginning of it that some friends and I figured we'd use our networks we traveled to different when we traveled to different places we'd help each other out by having our teams collect sports bras and we would just kind of use our small network and kind of see where it went Um, and about six months later we're like okay (laughs) this has gotten a lot bigger and there's a lot bigger need than we thought and there's an amazing network of women out there who really kind of got on board with it and they were all like like us it was like we never even thought about that but once you say it it becomes obvious And, um, so it's been fascinating and incredible to me, the power of social media and the interconnected networks between female athletes, um, women working within athletics across all sports has been incredible. Um,
0: the, uh, the reach of, um, just some of the, you know, statistics and sort of the, um, you know, media kit that you'd sent over. Um, I mean, you've absolutely, it's really grown, (laughs) um, And so when, in terms of a, a timeline, um, you know, when did it start in sort of, uh, you know, to give people sort of a ballpark of numbers, and uh, I'll be sure to link to, to all of this in the in the show notes, but, um, you know, when did it start and sort of, you know, kind of where is it at now?
1: Um, the trip to Namibia was in 2015, and it probably wasn't until 16 or 17 that I sort of bounced the idea as, as a small sort of project. Um to some friends, and then it's probably it's been the last two years, really, that we decided to take it and let's run with it and make it bigger and really start using our networks to connect. Um, and so it's really been two years. Uh, probably about a year ago, I reached out to a high school teammate of mine who was a lawyer. And she's now one of our board members. But I was like, you know, this is getting bigger than we planned. And if we did want to take it to its own nonprofit, what would we need to do? And she shopped it around to some law firms that she knew. So Wiley Ryan in D.C. took it on pro bono, which has been amazing. And they've done incredible work. So we're in the final stages of um, getting 501c3 status. Uh, One of our other board members is a... um, works or has a soccer club in California and it's a nonprofit. So we're currently fiscally sponsored by that club, which does allow us to operate like a nonprofit until our status comes fully through. Um, But that's been about, so that's been about a year in the works for that. So all told the project's probably been about two, two and a half years old um, from sort of that little initiative to, all right, let's see what we do with it. Right now, we went to the decisions we made early on where we wanted this not just to be soccer, it's from all sports to all sports, and whatever sport the women have access to, we want to be able to support. Um, I know that one of our first shipments of bras went to a netball program in Uganda. I have never played netball in my life. The little bit I know about it, I don't have much interest in netball, but if that's the one athletic outlet they have, absolutely we'll support it. Um, so it's, uh, the reach has really been across all sports, and we've, which has allowed us to have a lot of sports contribute in. So we've had about 40 different organizations contribute bras. Some have been as simple as every, uh, every player on a youth team has donated a bra at their Christmas party. Great. So you get 20 bras in. It doesn't sound like a lot, but that's an opportunity for a team. Um, and for them, that's accessible. Uh, other projects have been much larger. There's a volleyball program in Missouri that collected almost 400 bras in the space of eight weeks. They're in a small community and they mobilized their high school and alumni and parents and collected them at a sort of rivalry game. Um, So all told, we've been able to distribute about 2,500 bras to 14 different countries. I believe 40 to 50 different organizations have been involved um, in contributing bras. uh, Some of the things that we did early on, we were able to work with um, the Tucker Center, which is out of the University of Minnesota. They run a one-day coaching symposium, and their director had heard about it. A friend had connected us, and she invited us in last year. So getting out in front of 300 coaches from multiple sports, multiple levels, whether high school, college, and youth – and having the project get out to them and then them bring it back to their clubs and communities has been a tremendous resource. Um, and on the soccer side, Wisconsin has a women in soccer alliance, and they did a one-day symposium, and we were able to go to that as well. And I think the neat thing about that was, you know, I had, um, we were there, we had a table set up, we had people were contributing bras, asking questions, which was great. I presented it. Um... And then there were these two guys. It was mainly women at the event, but there were men there. And two guys kind of came over after we presented it and we're, and I'd seen them before. They kind of circled the table a little bit, but never came over. And they were like, now we get it. It's a piece of equipment. And like, yes, yeah, so now the male coaches can talk about this. It's nothing, you're not talking about Victoria's Secret. It's just a piece of equipment, like a Shin guard. And there suddenly like the light bulb went on for them. So to me that's been amazing to see. Um, so the reach has really grown thanks to some amazing people and some organizations that have allowed us to connect with them and then get in front of other organizations and kind of grow it organically that way.
0: Mm-hmm. I love the, um, the the two things that keep coming to mind uh, when I'm hearing you describe it. So the empowerment of females and young women and girls and the um you know connection to sport and yes the sport that you and i love is you know football soccer but um sort of the the broad range you know like you said it could be netball it could be cricket it could be uh, whatever uh you know that they're playing the fact that you are doing those two things and you know is the is the dad of two little girls Uh, I, I am, you know, I'll come out and say it. I I am pro empowerment, uh, of them and, uh, young women and, you know, things of that nature, because, um, like you said, it's demystifying it maybe is the the word I would use, right? Like you said, I mean, so would you ask a player, a male player to go out on the pitch without shin guards on, or would you ask them to go out without, you know, soccer boots on? And of course, you know, everybody would say, no, you're crazy, you know, and, and the referee probably wouldn't even allow it. Uh, okay, so then why is you know it okay for you know the needs of a, a female athlete, which may be a little different, um, to support them and uh, and what they're doing? And um, you know, I, I I didn't plan it this way, but the timing with the women's World Cup going yeah. on right now is uh, you know I, I guess good on both of our parts, <laughs> um, just because I I think and and I've watched virtually every match of the the women's world cup that um at least a a little bit of it Mm -hmm. that um you know at some point along the way there was someone or a group of people or something that inspired the women the coaches um the referees Mm -hmm. to pursue a higher level um it could be verbal encouragement it could be you know you know, Hey Sarah, like you should really stick with this. This is, you know, you're really good at this, you know, that sort of thing, but it could also be really practical too, right. Of, you know, you have a need, how can I address that need? Mm -hmm. Um, let me support you that way. And, um, you know, and I will say, uh, right hand up and people listening to this obviously can't see me do that, but, uh, (laughs) the, um, you know, the things we take for granted, Mm -hmm. uh, I, I was so a little bit, Separate, but somewhat related Um, when we were finishing our our coaching education course and there was a a group of players that we were able to work with um, on the one day in terms of our field session. And these were children of immigrants uh, Mm -hmm. to the US and English was a second language for, I want to say all, but maybe one or two of Mm -hmm. them. And they're not showing up in the latest, um, you know, Cristiano Ronaldo cleats Mm -hmm. or the latest Messies or... Mm -hmm um you know uh i mean they barely even had uniforms that matched um and so you know but they were incredibly creative players they were insanely talented i mean they were a truly a joy to watch and you know i'm watching them going what do i even do with this like how do i what, what can I say to them that's going to inspire them in some way, you know, or try to help them in some way. And, you know, it, the environment obviously made it a little difficult just with the, um, it being a coaching course in such right. a limited amount of time. But, um, you know, just understanding, you know, the, we, as coaches were saying, just we take a lot for granted um, in terms of, you know, we'd mentioned pay for play and sort of mm-hmm. the, access that especially here in the states that many players have youth players have do things that um you know people in other countries may or may not even dream of so yeah. um, the yeah.
1: immigrant population that you mentioned that's one that we tend to forget about and everyone like i think people have resonated they like the idea of sending bras to exotic locations and helping women in these sort of under-resourced communities and we do have a tendency to forget um, that there is a need in the u.s too whether that's in some of the rural America areas, whether that's in some of the sort of depressed economic areas or the immigrant population where a lot of these women are coming and, you know, the club I work with is in Manhattan and our girls and our boys programs draw from the same geographic areas, but the populations are very different. Um, the population and the diversity of Manhattan is very much represented on the boys' side. You could run sessions in half a dozen different languages and have at least a couple kids on each team understand you. On the girls' side, we still look a little bit more like that suburban sport, and um, it's not to anyone's fault with that. It's really, I think, when people come in, how do you assimilate with the culture you're moving into? Well, you do what you do at home, which means the boys play and the girls don't. So I think that population gets forgotten a lot. Um, And a lot of those girls, their moms didn't play, their aunts and their sisters didn't play. So they don't necessarily know that it's an option. And if they do know that it's an option when they get to that age where, you know, once you hit puberty and you're like, well, this is no longer comfortable, their parents or the women in their lives who haven't played may not be able to guide them through. Well, guess what? There's a sports bra. This will help. Um, and as simple as that um, seems and as common sense as that seems to us that uh, we take for granted here, it's not in a lot of populations coming from areas where the women just traditionally don't play. Um, so we have been really conscious of actively seeking out, and this is also a call to any of your audience, um, actively seeking out groups within the U.S. that are working with populations that, whether it's cultural or, or um, economic um, don't have the resources and we have found a few groups, which has been great. There's a wonderful one in DC that works with multiple sports, um, leveling the playing field, um, as well as a few other ones that we've now sort of gotten on our radar and are hoping to get pros to this fall. Um, but that's something that, you know, we forget about that population sometimes and uh, we want to make sure we don't forget about it. It's, it. Exotic locations are nice, but the US is important as well.
0: Yeah. If, uh, if folks want to support the work that you're doing and, um, you know, members of the team and the, the board, uh, how can they do that, Sarah?
1: So the easiest way is um, to do a sports bra drive. So if you want um, to, we really designed it to be scalable. So if you have a young team that wants to each contribute a bra, that's great. If you want to do something larger in a university and can mobilize your SAC community, um, which a couple schools have done, that's tremendous. Uh, we really designed it to be accessible to everybody as well that they can kind of give back and share their love of the sport um, whether it's one bra or a hundred bras um, so running a sports bra drive is is an easy way to do it um, resources and funding are obviously very helpful now that we're crossing into that bit of getting to more events um, including one coming up that I'll Love to talk about a little bit later before we <laughs> sign off. But um, on the website, there's an opportunity to donate. And then if you are interested in running a sports bra drive with your team or your club or organization, um, just reach out by email. There's some guidelines up on the website, but we're happy to answer questions and know that every school and every organization looks different. So your sports bra drive might look very different from somebody else's, and that's completely fine. Uh, we really want it to be able to be run by leadership groups and kind of back to that ownership piece Uh, It's designed to be, you can turn it over to your captains, a leadership group, um, a SAC committee, or a young assistant coach uh, who can kind of run with a project on their own and have the autonomy to do something that resonates with them, but also do it within sort of the constraints of where they're working um, at the time.
0: It's so uh, interesting to me as coaches, how our personalities come out in many forms, right? Uh, Yes, in a training session. Yes, in a match. Yes, you know, in leading players and in teams uh, away from the pitch, Mm -hmm but also in the work we do. And, um, uh, you know, just this strong desire, um, obviously don't know you that well, but Mm -hmm. I I picked up right away that you have this strong desire to want to help people. And I think that is, uh, absolutely fantastic. And, um, if folks want to connect with you, um, so you, you mentioned the the sports bra uh, project, but, uh, with you, you know, uh, via social media or uh, things like that, um, how can they uh, connect with you? Well,
1: the Sports Bar Project is on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Um, email is up on the website. And for me personally, it's SD Schick, um as on Twitter and the same thing on Instagram as well. And certainly message me. Messages are open, certainly. Free to message, ask questions on that. Uh, if you want to get involved in a small way or a large way, um, we welcome that, uh, whether it's soccer. Obviously, this is more of a soccer podcast, but I know the reach sort of extends if there's... People listening who have daughters who are involved in other sports. We've even been contacted by some cheer organizations, which I have no concept of, but I think this is great. <laughs> um, so, um, so those are probably the easiest ways on social media. And then we will be at, and this, this kind of came into play and everything sort of fell into place in the last few weeks, but equal playing field. Is running um, that they're the group that did the highest altitude game at Kilimanjaro a few years ago and the lowest one at the Dead Sea last year, raising awareness um, and funds and resources for women in populations where they may not have access to sports. They're running a five-day festival of football in Lyon leading up to the semifinals and finals. And the sports bra project will be there. So our goal is to... I will be bringing some bras with me. And then we're also asking women who are participating in their record-breaking game um, of the longest-running game um, to contribute a sports bra if they can. And those bras will go to women who are participating um, that Equal Playing Field has funded to come over from countries where they don't have access or where access is limited. So the idea is that we'll receive bras from participants in the festival, but then we'll give them back to the women who are participating in the festival who may not have those resources. So it'll be sort of a di- way to directly impact and provide an opportunity to someone else, um, within that same organization.
0: I think it's fantastic. I'm, uh, I'm in awe of what you and, uh, the, the sports bra project organization are doing. And, um, I'm so happy that we were able to uh, get connected to one another, Sarah, and that, cool. um, yeah. Even, you know, play a small part in helping tell uh, your story to, to the audience. And, um, you know, in the, I, like I said, there's a, a lot of uh, depth and um, sort of texture to your story. And I, I think we, uh, we captured it. So, mm-hmm. Thank you for uh, for being a guest uh, on the latest episode of the On the Touchline podcast.
1: Well, thank you for having me. I'm you, you have an amazing list of guests, and I'm absolutely humbled that I'm on that list with that with you for this one. And uh, your support is greatly appreciated in getting the word out. And um, yeah, thank you very much. Enjoyable conversation.
0: Want to save 10% on your next DukeTigBrand.com order? Use the promo code Broadwater19 at checkout. DukTigBrand.com If you've listened to the show before, you know how much I love Duke Brand. I use their XL notebook, I use their waterproof notebook, and absolutely swear by their products. Go to DukTigBrand.com right now. Duktigbrand. Dot com and save 10% at checkout on your next order. From apparel to logos to coaching notebooks, DukeTig Brand has got you hooked up. DukeTigBrand.com, promo code Broadwater19 at checkout. A big shout out to Sarah Dwyer Schick for coming on the latest episode of the On the Touchline podcast. And I've included in the show notes a link to take you to the sportsbraproject.org and how you can support that um, either individually or as part of a club or a league that you might be a part of. And uh, they certainly can, can use your support. And also reach out to them on social media and reach out to Sarah on social media as well. And, and mention to her that, that would love to have her back on the show. Sometime in the future. This podcast is available on 12 different podcasting platforms. So, places like Google, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, uh, iHeartRadio, and of course, Apple Podcast. So, if you listen to the show on Apple Podcast, I want you to go there right now. There's a link in the show notes of how to get there. Leave a five star rating and a review for the show. Really important you do that because that helps more and more people in the footballing and soccer community find out about this podcast. And by the time this airs, uh, we will have gone over 15,000 listens for the show. Absolutely incredible um, not knowing where this would go uh, when I launched in December of last year. So thank you for that. And I love when listeners of the show share out takeaways that they've learned. So um, someone that I've gotten connected with, uh, Jeff Ferguson in Maryland, shared out notes from a recent episode with Reed Maltby, and he was halfway through and he had basically a page full of notes. If there's something that a guest says or mentions or that comes up as a topic in this show and you'd like it, please share it out on social media. You can connect with me at any time. Uh, I'm at soccer coach JB on Twitter and Instagram. DMs are always open, and I always try my best to reply to every DM that I get. Um, so apologies that if I'm a little delayed in getting back to you, but know that at least your message is, is certainly being read. And last but not least, that if you have a commute to work or you have some, some extra time, Uh, I can't recommend enough using podcasts as a learning mechanism and as a tool to become a better football or soccer coach. Um, That is part of my experience. Uh, That is how I learn. I tend to be a a very audible uh, type of learner. And that if you like this show, tell a friend. Uh, Tell someone in the footballing and soccer community that we can hopefully provide some value to them is one of the podcasts that they listen to on a regular basis. All right, guys, you will get a brand new episode of this show on Saturday, and I'm proud to to share the work that Mike Mismer uh, is doing in Eastern PA. So look out for that one. Until next time, this has been the On the Touchline podcast, and I'm your host, Jason Broadwater.